In his 1989 farewell address, many of you might remember President Ronald Reagan said this. He said, all great change in America begins at the dinner table. That's, where the, place, that's the place where families bond and parents get to pass on you know, their, their values and their convictions to the next generation. And studies have shown it, and frankly, common sense affirms it. Family meals are key to strong family ties and healthy children. I happen to agree with that. I've experienced it in my life, but I will confess that family dinner doesn't always turn out to be a positive experience for everyone. Those of you with, um, well, it's not even just those of you with young children. It's just those of you with family. If you have ever been with a family, maybe extended family, maybe certain times of the year when you get together and you see folks that you haven't seen for a while and maybe they come bringing different perspectives on things, maybe different political views. We know how that tends to go at the dinner table. Um, you know what I'm talking about. What is supposed to be a bonding moment can become a time of tension or conflict or hurt feelings. People bring their, their blood sugar issues to the, to the mealtime. They bring their sometimes bad attitudes. Maybe you get a headache because of all the noise. You think of the Grinch, all the noise, noise, noise going on at the table when the kids are all there screaming and doing the things that they do. Um, arguments, fighting, on and on and on the list can go. Sometimes we come away feeling as if maybe it would have just have been better if we fasted tonight and just didn't eat anything at all. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that was the case in Corinth. The troubled church that we've been examining for Lent. Their corporate love feasts is what, what the early church would do. They would gather for meals, and in the midst of their love feasts, they would incorporate the Lord's Supper. It was all just sort of one large time of gathering and, and celebration and worship. But in Corinth, the love feast had become so dysfunctional and so toxic that it led Paul to say here in our text that I'm going to read here in just a moment, in verse 17, he says, I'm on the wrong page here, it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. In other words, it might have been better if you just hadn't met at all. Things are so bad. What should have been a time of fellowship and worship and the strengthening of church family ties, it had become a time for increasing disunity among the body. And so, for Palm Sunday, what better Sunday to, to preach this text, to look at this topic? We're going to take a closer look at the problems in Corinth concerning the Lord's Supper, that meal that Christ instituted on the night that he was betrayed, just a few short days after that first Palm procession. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you grabbed one of our guest Bibles in the back, we'll be on page 924. Uh, those are, by the way, a gift to you if you would like a Bible or um, know someone who needs a Bible, please feel free to take one of those. Some of them are pretty brand new, others have seen a little, a little more use. Uh, feel free to take whichever one you think is best if you need it or want it, and um, that is our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 and reading all the way uh, to the end of the chapter. Hear the Apostle Paul. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, 
Some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, whether, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. Thank you for your attention to that lengthy passage there. The meal that Christ instituted, that which Paul passed on, he says, from Christ himself to his church, goes by several names. And you've probably heard these names used interchangeably. We, we call it the Lord's Supper. We call it Holy Communion. You even might have heard it called uh, Eucharist, which is from the Greek word that means thanksgiving. Methodists, which is the tradition that we, our church comes from, as, product, as products of the Protestant Reformation in England, the Anglican Re- Reformation in particular, uh, has always viewed the Lord's Supper as a sacrament, which we define as an outward sign or seal of an inward reality. So it's something tangible, something expressed that we can see and touch and taste and feel that expresses something that happens on the inside. In a way, it's kind of like God's show and tell. Right? It's, it's where the mysteries of God, those things that cannot fully be comprehended in the mind, but they're, they're communicated and offered in ways that we, in all of our limits and with all of our brokenness and in all of our finitude, can not only, what we don't fully understand, but at least we can receive. We can receive the things being offered by God through his sacraments. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, viewed the sacraments as what he called a means of grace, And in his sermon on the topic, he defines the means of grace as this. He says, by means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying, and sanctifying grace. It's that phrase, ordinary channels, that is key to understanding Wesley's view of the sacraments. Yes, God is offering his grace to you and to me, and he offers his grace in a variety of ways, in a variety of circumstances. But it is in the sacraments that God offers his, his grace in, an, in the ordinary fashion. This is the way that God has ordained to be the channel by which we receive what he's offering us. 
If you imagine the, the grace of God sort of like a, a waterfall that's crashing down in, in unending supply, the means of grace are, are, is where we go and stand beneath that waterfall, where we bathe and drink and, and, and just absorb and receive all that God is lavishing on us through his son and by his spirit. Now, I, uh, you heard in the, the announcements this morning about the, the dates for our upcoming membership class. I'm going to take a moment and plug the membership class for you. We talk about this topic uh, on the second session of that three-part um, membership class. And so uh, if, even if you're already a member, uh, we're having the, the class in the infused youth suite over here where uh, one of the Sunday school class typically meets. They're going to uh, take a three-week pause, and we're going to do the membership class in there. And if you would like to come and just get a refresher, those of you maybe who've been here 20, 30, 40, 50, forever, <laughs> if you want to come and, and just be a part of that membership class and just get refreshed, uh, you, you are all invited to that. I, and I hope that you will be willing to join the many folks who have, have expressed interest in joining the church and will be there uh, to, to learn more about what membership is and what it means. Um, and we'll be talking about these things and others. Uh, on those three weeks. Now, what was instituted by Christ and practiced by the apostles, it can be found all throughout the New Testament and all throughout church history. The Lord's Supper is one of the four marks of the church. It can be found there in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the following four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. In other words, Anywhere you find the church, you can find these four things. The, the proclamation of the apostles' teachings, the, the, the faithful preaching of the 66 books of the, of the canon that we have here in our, our Holy Bibles, to fellowship, the gathering, the sharing of life, the, the, the meeting each other's needs, all the things that go into the fellowship of the church, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That is, that is always defined the, the church of God, and that is how you can identify the church in the world. Now, when it comes to communion, there are several key aspects to communion that give shape to it and help us to understand what it means. And you can find these elements in the midst of the Lord's Supper. Number one, of course, we've already said it's Thanksgiving. The Eucharist is an opportunity for us to gather together and express gratitude to God for all that he's done, for all his mighty acts throughout history, for creation, for, co for covenant, for redemption, for sanctification. Secondly, we, we find fellowship at the heart of communion. It is for the gathered community of the faithful. Paul says back in chapter 10 of this very letter, in verse 17, he says, Though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. Meaning this meal is an explicit statement of our unity, yes, with Christ. We come and we're receiving Christ and we're, we're finding solidarity and union and communion with Christ, but also we're finding oneness with each other as one body. Thirdly, another key aspect is remembrance. Jesus said, and you've heard it repeated many times perhaps in your life, do this in remembrance of me. And that remembrance is more than just some sort of intellectual exercise where we, where we recall something from the past. Remembrance in the scriptures is a dynamic action that represents the past acts of God in such a powerful way as to make them truly present now. In other words, we're not, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus. His sacrifice was sufficient once and for all. But we are representing his sacrifice in a powerful way that acknowledges that Christ is risen, that Christ is present. Christ is alive, not just in our memories, but in reality. 
And in this moment, in this, in this meal that he has instituted and, and invited you and me to come to, in this moment, he is offering himself and his grace to you and me right now in the elements. The early Methodists uh, sang about these things, and there was, their hymns were compiled in a, a collection called the Hymns on the Lord's Supper. And uh, if you're ever interested, I'd love to, to tell you more about that because in my, uh, to complete my master's degree, I wrote a, my thesis was on the Wesley's hymns on the Lord's Supper and the hymns on the Incarnation. And so uh, I have in my office all sorts of resources. If you ever are interested in, in reading some of those old hymns or learning more about them, I'd love to talk to you about that. But in their hymns, they sang about these things. The early Methodists put their theology to song, and that has always given shape to true Methodism throughout the years. And in hymns on the Lord's Supper, number 28, uh, verse 3, we read this. We see the blood that seals our peace. Talking about in the wine. We, we're seeing in the elements. We're not just re, they're not just a symbol of some past thing. We are remembering, we are representing that past thing in the present in a powerful way. It makes it real to us. We see, in, we see the blood that seals our peace. Thy pardoning mercy we receive. The bread doth visibly express the strength through which our spirits live. Remembrance is a powerful part of the sacrament. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit. And this is really, the presence of the Spirit is really key to the sacrament being what it is. The same Spirit who makes Christ present in the incarnation is the one who makes Christ present in the elements and in you and me as the body of Christ. The Bible says that Christ was conceived how? By the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the church came into being when? When the Spirit comes powerfully at Pentecost. The Bible says a Christian is born again how? By the power of the Spirit, the regenerating power of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit from beginning to end that affects the plans and purposes of God. And so, just as there is no incarnation, just as the, there is no regeneration, just as there is no body of Christ apart from the person of the Spirit, in the same way, there is no presence of God in the elements apart from from the Holy Spirit. One early Methodist hymn refers to the Holy Spirit as, and I like this, this word, it's a word we don't use. It's not on the screen yet, but it's from the same hymn. He is the remembrancer divine. Remembrancer divine. I love that. He's the one who interprets the sacrament to the believer, true recorder of his passion. Now the living faith impart. Now reveal his great salvation, preach his gospel to our heart. It's the Holy Spirit's presence that makes Christ present and powerful and at work in the sacrament. And lastly, of course, is the eschaton, or the final outcome of God's purpose for all of history. Yes, we look back, but we also look ahead. Paul said there in our passage in verse 26 that partaking of the Lord's Supper announces Christ until when? Until Christ comes again. And so we, we remember the past acts of God, but we also remember by faith the future acts of God that are crashing into the present when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Now, there's a whole lot more that, that could be said. I have not covered every aspect uh, to the topic. We have not exhausted it by any stretch of the imagination, but hopefully for you, that was a little, that was a helpful uh, moment of teaching that maybe expands your view of, of what we just part participated in a few moments ago. But the question that we're facing now as we're addressing this passage here is, what was going on in Corinth? If we, we, we see how the church has understood and practiced communion throughout the centuries, how has this church gotten it wrong? What were they doing that was so 
serious that warranted the apostle to write these things. I mean, he couldn't even wait until he got there. Apparently, at the end of the chapter, we learned that Paul was getting ready to come and, and make a visit in person. But this was so urgent and so important that he had to write it before he even came. And what was going on there? Well, we know already from verse 18 there that there was massive divisions within the body. We've, we've learned that already in this series. We've talked about the divisions, the factions, the rivalries, the things that were going on at this church. And Paul makes reference to those things again there in verse 18. But look at verse 20 again, if you would. Verse 20 says, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. And it begs the question, what were they really interested in then? Well, I'd like to say that I know, but I don't. I don't know exactly what, what the church was interested in when they gathered together for their meals. I can only tell you what they weren't interested in, and that is the things of God. Because you see, when you're interested in the things of God, you wouldn't be in such a hurry, as he says there in verses 21 and 22, to provide for yourself, to take something for yourself while neglecting those next to you. Anyone who is interested in the things of God will also simultaneously be interested in the things of those around you. As we've been saying for several weeks now, as we've been working through this, this book, the, the vertical dimension, our relationship to God, our orientation and posture towards God, will always, by necessity, determine our our horizontal relationships with those around us. The two are always connected. And so for these people who are gathering and, and, and basically fighting for what is theirs, hoarding what, what they think belongs to them, while those next to them are going without, clearly are not interested in the things of God. You can see it, right? You can see what was going on in their love feast. Imagine a, a, the potluck, that, that we, the potlucks that we have here. When a, a certain folks are the first to the line, because they want to get the best things. Now, it just so happens this church has such a gift of potlucking that all the things are good. <laughs> but you can see it, right? Uh, there's only so many pieces of fried chicken. There's only so many thighs in there, and the thighs are the best. So I'm going to go and get five thighs on my plate. You know, the people that are most concerned about themselves and what they want, what suits them, what meets their needs, what satisfies their cravings and their appetites. You see it, it, it you know, when you have, going back to the family meal, you know, when maybe there's someone who's being particularly selfish. Maybe one of your children wants the, the best thing or the, the biggest piece or the whatever, and they're, they're first in line, and they grab it and hoard it for themselves, and it's all about me and my thing and what, what satisfies and pleases me. I coach a seven- to nine-year-old soccer team right now, and one of the traditions in the Parks and Rec Soccer League is that at the end of each game, a different parent brings the snacks, and without fail, no matter how many times I tell those kids, you're a team, take turns. In fact, I tell them literally, serve each other. Don't just get the snack for yourself. Take it and give it to a teammate. I try so hard to teach them that. But do you think that happens when snack time comes around? <laughs> it's like in one minute, they're like this beautiful, you know, symphony of, of working together on the field and teammates and camaraderie and we put the hands in and yell team but then when it comes to food it's like <laughs> I've got cats that act that way by the way well at least one I've got two cats I've told you about them we have a gray male named JC and a black female named Raven and Raven is the just sweetest cat she's affectionate when, when, when you go and pet her and pick her up she just turns and gives you a little lick just a little lick just to tell you I love you thank you for giving me attention thank you for for loving me and oh I'm just so happy and then JC mm -mm. no no he's the schemer he's the manipulator 
He's the one who's all about the power move when it comes to the food bowls. He's the first there when the, fo- the food falls out of the bag, and he, sta- he eats from both bowls just to make his point that they both belong to him. He stands guard. He kind of hovers around, you know. He hovers around the cat box as well. Thank God we don't have cat box issues, but it's close. You should see when the other cat, maybe this is not something to talk about on Sunday morning in the pulpit. Um, but we have one of those cat boxes with a lid and a hole that they go down in the hole. Let's just say the black cat is so worried about being attacked by the gray cat that she doesn't even go in the hole to use the box. So it's, it's interesting to watch how this plays out. But that's the behavior of animals. That's how animals behave. That are focused on themselves and what meets their needs even if it means that it comes at the expense of another. And Paul says, you're not sharing fellowship with Christ or with one another when you seek out your own needs, when you satisfy your own cravings at the expense of your brothers and sisters. The Lord's table is supposed to be the place where everyone comes equally to the Lord. We're equal before the Lord, and we're equal among each other. And when that doesn't happen, Paul says in verse 22, it disgraces God's church. Interesting. That when we bring that stuff in our hearts, now I know we don't do the love feast here. We have potlucks, and then we have Lord's Supper. It's not a meal in the sense that like we're all bringing fried chicken, and all, but we're also having bread in the cup. But at any point in our time together as the church, What is our posture towards each other? What is our attitude in our hearts? How are we doing life together as the people of God? How are we, what are we bringing to the table when we come to to the Lord's table? Are we bringing in our, in our hearts some sort of condescension towards someone that else that's here? Some sort of bitterness, some sort of resentment? Are we bringing anger? Are we being haughty? Do we think we're, are we looking down our nose at each other as we're coming to Christ's table? Do we have a grudge? What marks our hearts? Is there any dysfunction or disunity here as we're partaking of the body and blood of the one who gave his life to tear down all walls of hostility? Do you see the problem there? Communion is to be the place where the gospel is proclaimed. Yes, we proclaim it from the pulpit. Yes, we proclaim it when we teach in our Sunday school classes and we go out in the community and outreach opportunities. When we go around the world in missions, absolutely, we're proclaiming the gospel by word and by deed in every aspect of our lives, absolutely. But, but to me, it is proclaimed most visibly and clearly and powerfully at the Lord's Supper. It is the gospel that proclaims that the Holy One has made a way for sinners to be reconciled back to himself where all the debts have been paid, where our redemption has been secured. We are a church bought at a great price that belongs to God. And, by the way, we belong to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Vertical, horizontal. Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. 
There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see the connection? He says it right here. If you are connected to Christ, if you have union with Christ, then you have oneness with each other. And anything short of that, in our church's life, in our hearts, when we partake of the elements, anything short of that union with Christ and that oneness with, other, with others, when we partake of these elements, anything short of that scandalizes the gospel. Paul says in verse 27, anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. If we were to, to translate that a little more literally, he's basically saying you are, you are making yourself responsible. Responsible. Guilty of crucifying Christ when you come in that way. Of placing yourself not in the company of those who share in the benefits of his passion, but in the company of those who are responsible for his crucifixion. Profaning the gospel is what he says in verse 29. It is to eat and to drink God's judgment upon yourself. And that is because we bind ourselves to the reality of what we're doing. The sacrament, yes, on one hand, it, it announces and proclaims Christ's saving work on our behalf, but it also pronounces God's righteous judgment upon sin. And when we participate in the sacrament, we bind ourselves to what we are doing. So if we come to him rightly, we experience the saving and the healing and the nourishing presence of God. But if we come to it wrongly, we place ourselves under his wrath which Paul says in verse 30 is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Imagine that. People who aren't well, people who have died because they came to the supper wrongly. Do we even think that way in church today? I'll confess, I tend not to think that seriously about it. And, I, and that's a hard confession as the pastor. And so I guess it starts with me. I guess it's time for me to start thinking about things that way. Hence, why we make the changes we made I would love to preach this sermon and then have communion. Could you imagine how perfect that would be? It'd be perfect because I could talk about these things and you can think differently about things and then we could express it and do it together at the end of the service. The timing would be perfect. Mwah, chef's kiss, perfect Sunday morning. But I'm so compelled to take these things seriously, to hear what the scriptures say, to think theologically and ecclesiologically, and pneumatologically, whatever, Holy Spirit-wise, I want to think about these things according to the scriptures, that I want to do church in a way that is faithful to the scriptures and honors the scriptures, and I cannot in good conscience serve communion any longer to a church that is divided. Because what are we expressing? We don't have two communions on Sunday morning anymore. No, we have one communion together. We come rightly it is of utmost importance that we take every measure to do just that, to come together rightly. And you might be asking, well, how do I do that then? How do I come rightly? How do I do this the right way to where I don't bind myself to the judgment and the wrath revealed on the cross? And I'll tell you, that is one of the great challenges of, of, for me as a shepherd of souls, as a someone in Christian ministry is one of the hardest things for me to do 
when thinking about how to do this rightly and guide people into doing it rightly. As I've mentioned already this morning, Methodism has always offered what we call an open table, meaning communion here is open to anyone who's responding to Christ's love, regardless of your age, regardless of church membership. John Wesley's own mother was saved receiving communion. Could you imagine that? The Wesleys refer to it as a converting ordinance. You can come and receive Jesus here, even if you're not baptized, even if you've never made a profession of faith before once in your life. If you're coming to Christ, it is Christ's invitation to himself. It is an open table for any and all who would come, regardless of your age, regardless of your membership, regardless of your status or standing, whatever. It is open to all. Come to him. The table is his. And the condition for coming rightly is not complete comprehension. Listen, another Greek word the ancient church used to describe the Lord's Supper was mysterion. There is a mystery here. The things of God are mysterious. We do not have complete, exhaustive, intellectual comprehension of what is taking place, and we need not have that. What do we need? Faith. Faith. Faith that trusts and obeys beyond the limits of reason or intelligence. And so all who come in faith, together with their children, are invited to receive the bread and the cup. That is my job, to communicate and offer that to you in a right manner. But yours, your responsibility, is to come with the right attitude. Well, we all come with the right attitude. And in our text, there's at least three aspects to that that I'm going to close with here. If you're a note taker, you're welcome to take notes here. Number one, what is the first aspect of coming with the right attitude? It's there in verse 27. It is to come worthily, which does not mean that you have to be worthy of it. That's something different entirely. One of the most beautiful things to me about the Lord's Supper is that Jesus offered it as we heard in verse 23, and as we recite every single time we have communion together, he offered it on the night he was betrayed. That is not insignificant. The scriptures would not include that little detail if it didn't matter. Why, Pastor Sean, does it matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because he offered it to the very people who would betray him that very night. And I went back again this week, and I looked in the Gospels. I tried to discern the timing of when the Lord's Supper was offered and when Jesus said the things and then when Judas did his thing and left and went out, as John says, into the night. Now, Matthew and Mark aren't very clear on the timing of things. It's very vague. Luke gives us a little clearer picture and from best I can tell, it wasn't just the other 11 who were there who, by the way, all turned their backs on Jesus that night. They are all betrayers. It wasn't just one. Judas may have gone and gotten the, the, the silver for it, but they all scattered like cockroaches when the light turns on when, the, when, when it came down to the most important moment of Jesus' life. But Luke makes it pretty clear to me that Judas was there for the whole thing. Imagine that. Jesus offering himself even to someone like him. And you and I, are not all that much different. Every one of us here has been guilty at some point in life for turning our backs on God. For all have sinned and fallen short. Every last one of us, we've all, like sheep, have, I'm gonna modify the scriptures here. This is not me saying it's 
I'm not correcting the scriptures. I'm just modifying to adapt to our needs here. Instead of all like sheep have gone astray, we all like cockroaches have scattered when the light turned on. And yet, it is for people like you and me that Jesus died. It is to people like you and me that God says, come, come to me. Come to me. Come and receive what I'm offering, what I've done for you. No one is ever worthy of that. Paul is not saying, you have to so get your life in order. You have to so fix all the things you've ever done wrong and have such an impeccable, perfect life that you are somehow deserving of this. He's not saying that for a second. No, it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed to his betrayers that Jesus said and did these things. And he offers it to you and me. Worthiness does not apply to the person who comes. Worthiness applies to the manner in which they come. How are you coming to him in all of your unworthiness? Well, we don't do so rudely. We don't do so flippantly. We don't do so in disorder. No, we do so with solemnity and intentionality and care. It's not a joke. We don't treat it like a joke. We take it serious. I mean, for some people in Corinth, it was a matter of life and death. We don't come in a way that puts ourselves first or in some way takes the spotlight off Christ and puts it on ourselves. We don't come in any way that comes at the expense of someone else. No, we come in humility. We come in repentance. We come in faith. We come in charity. That's in the invitation. We don't come harboring bitterness. Now, here's where it gets really hard, where we really have to, to examine ourselves, which is the next point where we're heading here. We cannot come harboring bitterness or haughtiness or anger or contempt, but only with hearts oriented toward unity and reconciliation. In short, to come worthily is to come in a way that does not bring reproach to the gospel. That's the invitation to come worthily. And it requires, secondly, an attitude of self-examination. Look at verse 28 again. He says, this is what, that is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. One of my... Um, Favorite movie, I guess it's a series of movies, is the Indiana Jones movies. Now, the first one's good. The second one, we'll just forget that one ever was made. The third one was my favorite. The fourth one was, I fell asleep in the middle of. I'm hoping that the fifth one com that comes, that's coming out like, sometime soon is pretty good. So they're, they're on track to have a, a good one. It's sort of like every odd one is good and every even one is bad. But it's that third one that I was thinking of this week that towards the end, and if this is a spoiler alert, well, guess what? That movie's like 25 years old, so if this spoils it for you, that's your fault, not mine. <laughs> but it's that final scene where he's making his way through the cave to get to where the, you know, the, the Holy Grail is, and the first of the challenges is, uh, you know, the, the, the expression is, only the what will pass. You remember? The penitent. All right, there's one person that's watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, apparently. <laughs> only the penitent shall pass. And as he's thinking about this, he realizes, oh, Penitence means I need to kneel. And just as he kneels, you know, the, the blade goes, it would have chopped his head off, and he, you know, does a little barrel roll and 
he's good. And I was thinking about penitence, and I was thinking, what, do we even know what penitence is, what it means to be penitent? Well, I'll tell you what penitence is. It is a godly sorrow that seeks forgiveness for wrongdoing. But it's one that comes from a very clear and honest awareness of our own faults before God. Penitence, true penitence, true repentance, same word root, always begins with an honest self-examination. I have to be real about what's really going on in my heart. There is no repentance apart from that. You cannot come to God as we are supposed to come to God unless we're following his lead. In his lead, it's always bad news before it's good news. He will show us why we need him. What is wrong that needs to be made right? How we're not sufficient on our own, how we can't do it on our own, how we need him desperately. It begins with self-examination. And Paul wants anyone who comes to the table to be honest about the true condition of their hearts that they might partake in humility and with integrity, not pretending to be one thing, but being something else. That's what happens when we come, when we come fake, when it's all about the show or the, the production. I want people to see that I'm a good Christian and I'm coming up here to receive the Lord's Supper because I'm a leader in the church. I'm, a, I'm an important person. No, that's not coming with integrity. Who are you? Who am I? At the foot of the cross. Oh, that's, a, that's the great equalizer, isn't it? We come on the exact same footing and it is only ever in humility and penitence and faith. We don't have to have it all together, but we do have to be honest with God and with ourselves when we come. Lastly, and I know we're getting late, so bear with me, we're almost done. Verse 29, we must come in a way that, well, in the NLT here says, on a way that honors the body of Christ. But I like the more literal, and it's actually a little more ambiguous here. It literally says in the Greek, in a way that discerns the body. Not so much honors the body of Christ, I think that's part of it, but it's more generally speaking, a way that discerns the body. And I think that is Paul's way of intentionally saying two things at the same time. There's a double meaning here. The first, I think he's saying, we come, when we discern the body, he's saying we are discerning the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. This isn't just some ordinary meal. It's not just some mere memorial of some past thing. It's not just some sort of empty symbol. No, it is holy and sacred because Christ is present there. He himself is present offering himself to you and to me. And this is missed when we just breeze through it and go through it as some sort of mundane routine. We miss that when we just go through the, the motions, some sort of rote rehearsal of the things we've, we've done a million times. When we treat these things as routine, we are not discerning the body of Christ. Hymns on the Lord's Supper, number 92, verse 6, says this. I love this. Receiving the bread on Jesus we feed. That's how the, the early Methodists viewed the sacrament. We're not just eating a piece of bread. We are feeding on Christ. It does not appear his manner of working, but Jesus is here. Discerning the body means first and foremost that when you come to communion, you see it by faith as coming to Christ. But I think Paul had another meaning here, and we discern this meaning from the context of the passage. It's not just discerning the real presence of the Lord. It is also, and just as importantly, discerning that we together as the church are the body of Christ in the world. And this was the Corinthians' failure. 
This is where they got this wrong with all their divisions and all their factions and all their rivalries and and the way that they were doing life together. They failed to see one another as the body of Christ and live accordingly. And so Paul exhorts them right here in our text. Verse 21, attend to each other, serve one another, meet each other's needs. Verse 33, wait for each other. This is your family. Care and love and support one another at all times. And so, what is our attitude? Come worthily with self-examination to Christ as one body. That is the kind of church that I want to be. And I know that's what you want to be too. One that shares deep, intimate, abiding union and fellowship with Christ and with each other. And I've seen that happen in so many beautiful ways here. It's just astounding. A church that proclaims the gospel with integrity one that honors Christ, but also one another as equals, caring for and meeting each other's needs. One that expresses all of these things in our corporate life together, but especially when we partake of the sacrament. I believe that that's what this church is, by the grace of God. But you might be sitting here this morning thinking, man, in one of these areas, I have fallen short or am actively falling short. In one of these areas, I have, I have not measured up. I have not been coming worthily. I've been holding a grudge in my heart against somebody. I've been looking down my nose at someone that sits to my left or to my right. I have not been discerning the body of Christ. I haven't been viewing this as me coming to Jesus. It's just been something I did because the person next to me did it or because my, my spouse or my, my sibling did it or my friend and I want to be part of the group and I don't want to feel uncomfortable sitting alone in my seat. I did it for all the wrong reasons and I want to tell you it's okay because Paul tells us God wants to teach us these things and even use his tactics of, well, discipline to bring us back to himself while there's time. And so as we close the service here, you're invited in our closing song as the worship team makes their way up and as you're reflecting on these things, you're invited to come and and pray. You can seek forgiveness. You can pray for someone that you know that needs their heart convicted. You can do whatever business needs to be done right here. You can seek Jesus and his grace for you in your time of need. He's here, he's alive, and he's, he's at work to make us to be the people of God that brings glory to God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity on this Palm Sunday to, to think perhaps a little more deeply about the Lord's Supper, what you have instituted and left for your church, these beautiful signs and seals of deep, mysterious reality. We don't know how it all works exactly. We don't understand the inner workings of everything. We haven't figured it all out, but we believe it. And we trust you. And we don't know how the bread and the cup are your body and blood. We're not gonna pretend to, to, to have an answer, but we believe that when we come to the elements and we receive them, we're coming to you and we're receiving you as you have received us. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live the Christian life on our own, but you give us your spirit to give us power and strength and so that we can walk in true righteousness and holiness, and then you give us each other to do life together with. Thank you for this church in all the ways that it has been, the community, the family, the brothers and sisters that I need and that my family needs, my kids need. Thank you, Lord, for, for what you've done in this church for over 75 years, and what you're going to continue to do as we come and surrender ourselves to you 
and say yes to you and your purposes and your will. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Guide us now as we respond in a way that is faithful to how you're leading us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.